And oh, when your race car hits the line And you've been around a hundred times Do you keep going? And it's over, but the show is not complete In your mind there's still another scene Do you get on stage? And you feel like you'll never lose You never even get a bruise You're invincible Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. That voice you just heard singing, that's today's guest on the show, D.A. Wallach. D.A. is the founder and general partner of Time BioVentures. Time is a relative newcomer to the biotech world, investing out of a $100 million inaugural fund. The strategy is to invest in companies seeking to make a big impact in therapeutics, diagnostics, research tools, and healthcare delivery models. DA says he seeks out companies with brilliant and driven founders, wants to let them have a meaningful ownership stake in the company, and then help them build great, enduring enterprises. Quote, if they're successful, you'd want to own them forever, DA told me a few months ago. DA assembled his inaugural fund with co-founder and general partner Tim Wright, a physician scientist with a long track record of developing medicines at Pfizer and then Novartis. DA counts some very prominent people among his fund's advisors. Bob Nelson of ArchVenture Partners, Jay Flatley, the trailblazing former CEO of Illumina, and Nobel laureate Jim Allison among them. DA is maybe the only person I know who is exceptionally well-wired into Hollywood, Silicon Valley's high-tech world, and Kendall Square. It's a really a reflection of his diverse interests and talents. DA finds himself in position to get in on the ground floor of some of biotech's most exciting startups after what can only be described as a unique personal journey. He grew up in Wisconsin, went to Harvard, majored in African-American studies there, became a successful recording musician, toured the world with Lady Gaga, Weezer, and Blink-182, went to work for Spotify, and then set out to become an investor. He discovered the biotech revolution and then dedicated this next chapter of his career to learning everything he could about how it could transform healthcare for the better. I've known DA for a number of years as we have shared interests in biotech. He's been a Timmerman Report subscriber since the beginning and was an early enthusiastic reader of my book about DNA sequencing pioneer Leroy Hood. A year after that, DA gave me a half-written, unpublished song from his catalog called Race Car. It has the signature, upbeat piano chords that have opened this podcast since the beginning in 2017. I've always enjoyed it and am grateful for that. One key takeaway from listening to DA's story, people come to the biotech industry from a wide variety of backgrounds, and some of the most successful people never stop learning. They have an endless curiosity. Now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, the Bio CEO and Investor Conference. Now in its 25th year, the Bio CEO and Investor Conference is a premier event connecting biotech leaders from established and emerging public and private companies with the investor and banking communities. You can expect limitless networking, on-point sessions crafted by impressive industry experts, polished company presentations, 
and making important connections powered by bio one-on-one partnering. We look forward to seeing you February 9 to February 6 to 9 in New York and virtually. Register now at bio.org slash CEO. I'll add that I've attended bio CEO a few times, most recently in February of 2020 in New York. I interviewed Jeremy Levin there for an episode of The Long Run when he was bio chairman. It's the kind of meeting where biotech newsmakers can have productive dialogues with investors and other key players. Again, to register, go to bio.org slash CEO. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you will love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth coverage of the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that synthesizes the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis, and groups can get a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe for more. Now, please join me and D.A. Wallach on the long run. D.A. Wallach, welcome to the long run. Thanks, Luke. Good to be here. So uh, I have a new idea for a podcast, D.A. Two curly-haired boys from Wisconsin talk about biotech. <laughs> Does this sound like a hit to you? <laughs> um, it sounds like there's an audience of four or five people in the world who would uh, be interested. <laughs> I figured. Um, but uh, but seriously, it's going to be... Uh, I, I really look forward to uh, diving into your life story um, and, and how you uh, became a biotech VC. Uh, we do have a lot of common interests. Um, so... Just to get started, um, I always like to begin from the beginning. Um, You grew up in Wisconsin. Whereabouts? I grew up first in a small town called Appleton that you may know. And then uh, in fourth grade, my family moved to Milwaukee and lived in Milwaukee until I went away to college. So what uh, did your mom and dad do for a living? Well, my father is a lawyer by training. Uh, a state planning lawyer. And my mother was in the financial services industry. Uh, and so probably I owe my interests, at least initially in the investment world to her. Um, she built uh, and ran a series of mutual fund companies. Huh. Okay. Uh, out of Milwaukee. First Appleton and then Milwaukee. We actually moved to Wisconsin. I was born in Denver. We moved to Wisconsin because she took a job building a mutual fund business for uh, what was a uh, Lutheran mutual benefit insurance company. Uh, And they wanted to get into the mutual fund industry and uh, recruited her to do that. So we as a family, and I at the time was very young, moved to this small Wisconsin town. and, uh, And it was a great place to grow up. Did you have any siblings? I have a uh, younger sister who's 10 years younger, and I have two older brothers from uh, my father's first marriage, and they're considerably older, so I didn't grow up with them uh, in the house, but we uh, we were all close. Okay. Okay. So you're, you're growing up in Milwaukee. What, uh, what kind of schools did you attend? Well, in Appleton, I went to, I think, you know, the best school my parents could find there, which was a Catholic 
um, school there. We're not Catholic, but uh, that was the best school around. So I went there and was the awkward kid who uh, didn't get first communion and sat there where everyone else did. Um, so I, I think in retrospect that that experience maybe trained me to uh, be most comfortable when I'm a bit of an outsider. And uh, that's been a theme throughout my life. And then when we moved to Milwaukee, I went to a great uh, private school there and had some really amazing teachers, especially in high school, who made a huge impact on me. Huh. Well, any one in particular that you, you want to mention? Sure. Well, my, my sort of mentor in high school was a teacher named John Stevens, uh, went by JS. And he was both the U.S. history teacher at my high school and then also ran an extracurricular program that I got very involved with, which was called the Fed Challenge. And this sparked my interest in economics. And uh, the Fed Challenge was a contest that was run by the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, it was a national program. And in this program, nerdy high school kids like me um, formed groups of five. And we had to, as a team, uh, produce an assessment of the current state of the U.S. economy and make a series of recommendations around what the Federal Reserve should do with its policy instruments. And we would compete with each other to um, make these presentations to folks at the Fed, first at the, um, at the district level. And then if you won at the district level, which we did two times, which was a great experience, you went and competed nationally. And at the time, we even got to present to uh, some of the Fed governors and uh, meet Alan Greenspan at the time, who was you know the big kahuna. So JS um, created that program at my high school, and, and I got to work with him very closely. He also, incidentally, had been uh, the mentor of a much smarter student than me, a guy named Raj Chetty, who came out of our high school, I think, four years before me. And Raj, I think, became the youngest tenured economics professor at Harvard, where he still is now today, and is you know one of the top economists in the world at this time. Has done groundbreaking work. So JS's impact, uh, you know, was broad on on a lot of students, and I was fortunate to be one of them. So you had a couple of important early influences in in your mom and JS in thinking about economics and investing. Uh, is that sort of what you thought you were interested in and might do when you were in high school? You know, at the time, I was really interested in public policy. And um, there were sort of two dimensions to it. One was I got very interested growing up in Milwaukee in issues of race and race relations. And Milwaukee, you may know, is depending on the measure of the first or second most racially segregated city in America and really struggles on um, some very difficult um, areas, including teen pregnancy, high school dropout rates, uh, crime, gang violence, and so forth. And I just became fascinated in high school uh, about how it ended up that way. You know, how, how did the city end up so racially segregated and how did one side of the tracks end up suffering from so much deep um, social disadvantage, while the other side of the tracks was sort of an idyllic Midwestern um, environment. And so that was one interest that I had. And then the parallel interest was in sort of how public policy played a role 
in that and so many other issues because the backdrop of so much in our society, including, as you know, the healthcare business, is driven by policymaking. And so those were kind of my intellectual passions and the economics stuff fit right into it um, because, you know, I was curious about how the economy worked and how the government's policy drove uh, behavior in the economy. And ultimately, you know, the, the economy is the foundation on which all of us build our lives. You know, when I was a kid going to public schools in Wisconsin, we didn't really learn about this. <laughs> uh, did you have to, did, were you exposed to it or did you kind of seek this out uh, on your own? Which, uh, which, which part? Well, the, the part about the uh, disparities with uh, African-Americans. No, I mean, yeah, it was not something that was a part of our curriculum in any way. And, uh, you know, I know right now there's a vigorous debate in our society around you know, so-called wokeness and the attention that racial and gender and other disparities receive. But at the time, it, it was not really center stage. I mean, race has always been very prominent in the American political discourse. But at the time, and certainly in my high school, it was not something that people talked about a lot. And I thought that was, frankly, outrageous because my high school, albeit a very um, elite institution in the city, uh, when I went back and learned about it, had actually been the product of uh, German socialists, the Turners, who had fled Germany and settled in Milwaukee. Milwaukee in the early 20th century had a series of socialist mayors. And um, so the school actually came out of a merger between one that was formed by these German socialist rebels who were really radical social reformers, and another school which was um, formed by suffragettes. So it was crazy to me that we were at this high school that had its roots in these, you know, very uh, progressive American political organizing movements of the 20th century, and yet it had basically become a country club uh, for, for rich people's kids. Yeah. And so there was that history that probably wasn't taught <laughs> in the curriculum. And there was also, you know, the Great Migration and all these African-Americans come from the South and settle in these northern industrial cities like Milwaukee, often attracted by manufacturing jobs. And they, by the time you roll around there in the in the 80s and 90s, uh, <laughs> a lot of that was in decline. And, and there were all kinds of policy decisions, right, which we don't need to go into. But um, you're observing this. And you're a curious white kid. <laughs> um, you decide it's, you're going to go to college. You go to Harvard and you, you decide to study African-American studies. Um, what was your thinking around, uh, around that choice? Well, my, I'd say, intellectual uh, spark really came from discovering the work of uh, Cornell West. You know, towering intellectual figure in America. And I had seen uh, Dr. West give an interview about a book, a, a compendium of his essays on C SPAN. This is when I was in high school. And I went and bought the book because I was so impressed by him. And I started reading it, and nothing in the book made any sense to me. It was all gibberish, truly. Uh, he had an essay on the hermeneutics of Hegel, and, you know, there's all these incredibly um, obtuse topics and trying to just understand 
what this book was about, what these essays were about, became my sort of roadmap to learning. And um, so through that, I kind of fell in love with a number of great writers in the African-American tradition and um, progressively figured out throughout high school that that would sort of be a, a great, you know, subject to consume my college years. And so the essay I wrote for my application to Harvard was why a white kid from Milwaukee wants to do African-American studies at Harvard. And it was a very um, literal essay. That's per- pretty unusual. Not, not too many white kids from the upper Midwest go to Harvard to major in African-American studies. And it was wonderful. It was a great experience. Unfortunately, Dr. West had left Harvard at the time, but Henry Louis Gates, who then became a mentor of mine later on, was still running and had really built the African-American studies department at Harvard. And he created an incredibly special environment for students like me to learn uh, in an interdisciplinary way. That was the other thing I loved about it. And that has been another theme of my life, which is that I'm really drawn to interdisciplinary learning. And what Dr. Gates, he's not a doctor, I guess, but what, what Professor Gates had built was a wonderful department full of faculty coming from different disciplines, literature, philosophy, history, um, music, theory, even, and uh, folks who represented a wide range of different perspectives. So it was, it was a great um, department to, to be in, even as an undergraduate. And that was really kind of my home at Harvard. So you're getting all of this uh, humanities uh, exposure. Uh, did you take many science classes then? I, I really regret that I did not. And I frankly thought it was boring. You know, my, the one um, knock I'd have on my high school and middle school education was that the science curriculum didn't inspire me. Um, I've got this simple observation that I will tell anyone who listens, which is that at least in my school, your science uh, instruction began with uh, began with biology, then went to chemistry, and then to physics. So that was the order. You know, sophomore year was biology, and then junior year was chemistry, and then physics. And in retrospect, this was completely backwards because you should start with physics, which forms the basis of understanding chemistry. And only once you understand chemistry does biology get interesting. So I had been, I think, um, misguided in, in that I concluded the sciences were really boring, that they were just memorization. And I think my interest in understanding systems like the economy or even uh, the way racial identity works in society or things like this was ultimately a kind of scientific interest. I mean, what I really wanted wasn't just storytelling about how these systems work. I wanted to really uh, find theories that were predictive and that truly explained these very difficult phenomena to capture. And um, it was only after school that I started to realize that the humanities were fantastic, but they were lacking the kind of empirical um, approaches that to me 
have the potential to really lead you somewhere, um, or at least to lead you to solid ground. And um, it was at, at that point that I started getting more interested in the sciences. One of my first, I think, um, encounters with biology was reading E.O. Wilson's work. And that really blew my mind and, and got me very excited. And that was the first time I thought, whoa, biology is super interesting. Okay, but that came later. So still, still at Harvard here, you um, uh, are, are aspiring to become an artist, musician. Uh, I, I know that there's quite a story here, uh, but can you just tell us a little bit about uh, how you, you got to join this band and, uh, and get discovered and have some success? Sure. Well, our, our freshman year, I get to school and I rapidly discover that so many of my classmates are on a path to either management consulting or investment banking. And in high school, I, I didn't even know these were careers. And as I started to learn that that was that Harvard was in a way sort of like a, a preparatory school, it's like a a tech school, you know, for those industries. I thought, geez, that is the last thing I want to do with my life. And I had been very passionate about music as a hobby, and so I met some friends freshman year. We started a band, and we started to have some success just doing shows around campus and around Boston. And I started learning how to write songs with my partner, Max, um, who was our guitar player. And that just took over my life. It, it just became the only thing I really cared about deeply. And um, I think by the end of freshman year, both Max and I and our other bandmates had come to the conclusion that if, if there was a way to do it, we should try to make this our career. Um, that it would just be so much more fun and so much freer than any career path we could pursue. And so um, fast forward four years, and by the end of school, Max and I were still doing the band. The other guys had you know, quit to go do other things. We're still all friends, but and they've had great success that I can tell you about separately. But Max and I were still doing it. And just before we graduated, um, we caught a big break, which was that some very famous artists discovered our music and um, and flew us out to California and offered us record deals. And so we signed a big record deal with Interscope Records um, at the uh, invitation of Pharrell Williams, who's just an amazing artist and producer and songwriter, has been another mentor of mine. And um, and that sort of opened the next chapter after school, which was uh, several years that I spent touring and making records with the band. And, you know, in that period, that was all I cared about. Who were some of your musical interests or, uh, I mean, influences? Oh, man. Well, I mean, there are just so many. I'd say I was always um, drawn to artists who, in my mind, were a source, were sort of like a source of truth. You know, they sort of um, were iconoclastic, were, you know, focused on the sort of authentic self-expression, telling the truth uh, that made them stand out. And those would be people like John Lennon and Curtis Mayfield, Bob Marley, and, and then, you know, just an infinite list of other folks who made a huge impact on us from a purely musical perspective. So you did the songwriting, you were singing. Uh, did you play an instrument too? 
Well, not a, not really. Um, I've subsequently learned. I started as a drummer, so before I was singing, I was a drummer. But I got beat out uh, to join our band by my friend Damien. Um, he just is putting out a movie right now that I'll plug called Babylon. He's become one of the most important directors in Hollywood, and uh, and so Damien. This is D- Damien Chazelle, director of La La Land. That's right. Yeah. And Damien was an amazing drummer, but he turned out to be an even better filmmaker. And so I was um, relegated to singing. And uh, and then my instrument really became the studio because we spent a lot of time making our first album. Basically, for the subsequent three years after freshman year, the last three years of college, we were just living in the studio. I didn't realize it at the time, but this ended up... Um, creating a sort of foundation for me in in understanding biology because uh, recording engineering is all about signal processing. And so when you think about systems biology, when you think about um, how biological pathways work, uh, there are a lot of parallels to audio engineering. Audio engineering is much simpler, of course, but it did give me a kind of framework for um, encountering an engineering discipline. And I think I didn't realize at the time, but that was preparing me for some of the stuff I do today. Huh. I've not heard that uh, comparison before. That's interesting. Okay. So you get swept up into this uh, rarefied world of uh, of leading musicians uh, of our time. You're spending time in in Hollywood. uh, And then you go on tour with a bunch of famous acts for for how long? Yeah, we were touring... Pretty much nonstop for I don't know three years. And with who? Lady Gaga, Blink One Eighty Two, Pharrell, Weezer, um, really great artists, folks we looked up to. So you're um, playing in front of large crowds um, around the world. Yeah, and you know, I mean, they, they weren't always our crowds, but. Um, you know, definitely got to play in stadiums and feel the thrill of that, which uh, was awesome. So, how did it? How did you decide that you wanted to do something different from this seemingly glamorous world of the touring musician? <laughs> well, I guess the reality of it was less glamorous than the outside view tends to be. Um, it was a lot of fun, but what you're doing is you're living in a bus with eight other guys and you drive from city to city while you're sleeping in in the bus every night. And then you wake up and you do the exact same thing every day over and over again. (laughs) And so as someone who likes novelty, likes learning, likes new things, after two years of that, I kind of was starting to think, man, maybe this isn't what I want to be doing when I'm 50. And so I didn't have a exit strategy, but I think I was starting to doubt it as my long-term career, unfortunately. And then I got very lucky when in 2011, I guess it was, I met the founders of Spotify and it struck me that they were going to completely upend the music industry. And I thought, I would much rather be on the side of the disruptor than um, getting disrupted. 
which you, you could see then. This is the early 2010s, and the internet had come. And music was one of those disrupted industries in a big way. How did you think about what was happening in the larger world and, uh, and, and how to, I don't know, create a more sustainable model for people to create music? Well, that's right. I mean, it, it, when I say that I was worried about being disrupted, that actually is a little um, deceptive because that was like the fear. It has been the fear during the entirety of uh, streaming music's rise, that fear among artists that this model was going to ruin their business. In reality, uh, it has been the salvation of the recorded music industry. And that was what I came to appreciate pretty early, which was that the big problem in the industry was that everyone had stopped paying for music. Um, with the rise of the internet, there was really no reason to pay for music. You just went on YouTube and listened to whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted. And so what I saw Spotify doing, and then others who, who followed them into this model, was convincing music fans that if you just pay $10 a month, you could have everything at your fingertips. And if you did that, the average user would, of course, then be paying $120 a year. Well, it turned out if you looked at what music consumers were doing before streaming, the average music fan was spending something like $60 a year. So I thought, geez, this is doubling the revenue per fan that the industry generates. And this actually holds the potential to bring most of the music fans in the world back into a paid model. And if you could double the revenues of the industry at large, and then grow it even further from there, that actually had the potential to make um, the recorded music business one that was really vibrant again. And that has basically happened. It's, it's changed the way the industry works, but it has largely brought it back. But so um, you were, I guess your title was artist in residence. So what, what did you actually do there at Spotify? Well, I did two things. One was I went around trying to convince um, the world's sort of notable artists that Spotify was their friend and not their enemy. And I was uniquely positioned to do that as someone who was an artist myself, because I really understood what the business was like as an artist. The other thing I did was I tried to help the company build a product that not only served music fans, but that also um, augmented the tools that artists had at their disposal. So that gave artists visibility into the data around people who were listening to their music and which of their songs were getting popular and spreading through the internet. Um, we built tools that helped artists sell merchandise or sell concert tickets to the fans who were listening to their content on the platform. So, um, those were my sort of dual functions. Um, and I also then sort of took my first swing at finance in raising a bunch of capital for the company from some of the biggest artists in the world. And those folks became our allies because they had a real vested interest in the company's success. And, um, and, and that ended up being, you know, I think, uh, important for the company's growth as well. Seems like a really useful experience in thinking about new business models and what's best for what's good for consumers as well as producers and trying to create some kind of 
healthy balance, I guess, uh, as opposed to the early days of Napster when it was just, okay, we used to buy stuff. <laughs> now we're going to take stuff for free. The, 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 you're trying to create something that uh, rewarded the producers uh, appropriately for what they had created. That was the goal. And um, I, I don't want to drive the conversation too quickly into healthcare if you still want to talk music, but I, I believe there are a lot of parallels, uh, at least from my vantage point, in yeah. the sort of problems that you know need to be solved in order to make innovation take off in healthcare. And, uh, and so it was great training ground for that. Well, this is why I ask because you know if you're going to invest, you need to think about business models, and you can think about business models in one industry or another, and and take some lessons away. So I think this was valuable. Now I do want to ask. Okay, you you come to you do your thing at Spotify, but then how did you get interested in biotechnology, and and what really piqued your curiosity? Sure, I was starting to make investments outside of Spotify, looking for in my mind, the next Spotify. And um, that took me through a number of different industries. I invested in SpaceX and a company called Upside Foods now that's one of the leaders in lab-grown meat. And uh, I was doing all kinds of stuff. Was this like Spotify's corporate venture? Funds? No, it was just me. It was, it was me cold calling entrepreneurs um, and asking them if I could invest a little money in their businesses. Well, with personal money. Well, so I, I mean, were, were, you were independently wealthy by this point, or well, I had saved up no? a little bit. But look, it was the it was a real disciplining force that I didn't have a lot of money, and um, I could make let's call it three investments a year between ten and thirty thousand dollars something like that. That was kind of my budget. And I thought, if I can find um, some really promising companies, that'll be a great way to you know, get to the next level financially and learn the investment business and be a part of things that are really exciting. This year's BioCEO and Investor Conference sessions cover the challenges you face like weathering a challenging market, price control policy issues, and exciting treatment advances. More than 100 company presentations are scheduled. Here's what Philip Ross, global chairman of JP Morgan Healthcare Investment Banking, had to say. Quote, the Bio CEO and Investor Conference offers a collaborative forum where executives, investors, and industry stakeholders can come together to learn and exchange ideas about innovation in the biopharma ecosystem. End quote. Join us February 6 to 9 in New York and virtually. Explore the program and register at bio.org slash CEO. You're in your 20s at this point, and you've got a little money that you've saved up to invest in, in what? Just a, a Schwab or Ameritrade account? Yeah. And and then, you know, and I was I had some cash saved up from touring and doing gigs and Spotify stock and I thought, you know, let's let's put this into some other really exciting companies and and see where it goes. So you this what years are we talking that this sort of took off for you? This is like 2011 through 2015, something like that. Okay. 
Okay, so you're looking around a, a variety of industries, cool things that are emerging. That, uh, and and uh, but what was the first thing that caught your eye in biotech? Well, I started looking in healthcare delivery. And the first investment I made was in a company called Doctor on Demand. And they've been one of the leading telemedicine companies over the past several years. But that was before telemedicine was a household concept. And what I got excited about was this possibility that in the future, uh, you wouldn't need to go to a doctor's office and sit there and wait for an hour and then go to the exam room and wait for another 15 minutes. And, you know, the sort of insulting consumer experience we're all used to in healthcare. I thought, wow, how great would it be if you could just pull out your cell phone and talk to a doctor? Not that different from pulling out your cell phone and listening to any song you want. And so that was my first investment in healthcare. And it sort of gave me the bug for learning more about the industry and trying to understand why the industry was so technologically outdated. So you start there with delivery. Uh, and, and where did it lead you from there? It led me through two or three years of uh, immersing myself in the prosaic details of our healthcare uh, delivery system and our healthcare payment system. And at the end of it, I came to the conclusion that healthcare delivery was sadly unlikely to be disrupted at the same pace that we've seen other, let's call it analog industries go digital. When I started, I thought maybe this massive industry is about to go digital, so to speak. And by the end of that learning period and a handful of investments that I made along the way, I came to the conclusion that it was really stuck in the mud our healthcare system, that there were so many bad incentives at play across the government, the labor market in healthcare, the institutions we have like hospitals and insurance companies, PBMs, pharmacies, that change was not going to happen quickly. Um, slow change could still be a big deal and make for great investments, but it wasn't going to be like quick. And by contrast, I started to realize that in parallel, there was really a burgeoning revolution uh, already, you know, decades in motion in biotech. And that what actually did move the needle very quickly in healthcare were breakthrough medical products, be they drugs or research tools or new diagnostics, that these kinds of products, when people developed them and got them to the market could actually take over the world very quickly and change the standard of care very quickly. And that was kind of my aha moment. And I said, wow, that's where I should be spending my time. I'm thinking of these vintage years, you know, mid 2010s. And that was the pain of the Affordable Care Act, <laughs> uh, trying to incentivize a lot of the behaviors that you're talking about with digitization and, and all that, and how, how long and difficult that was going up against the incentive structures you describe. But around that same time, gosh, things were happening uh, biologically. I, the hepatitis C cures came out. 
right around then. And there, there you could see, oh, <laughs> I mean, there's a controversy about how we price these and, and provide access, but wow, uh, to, to you know, cure a disease, uh, that, that can really make a big impact on both individuals and uh, a health system. Oh, that's right. And it shifted my view, which has been evolving over time, to be more and more, in a, in a way, um, anti-healthcare system. And what I mean by that is what I really want to see happen is I want cures, like what you're talking about, to put out of business our dysfunctional healthcare system. And so it began to be clear to me that that these sort of products, these sort of curative products or true preventative medicine, when we ultimately get there, will have the effect of actually dismantling our healthcare system as we know it today. And that's the way we'll fix it. We're not going to fix it um, through a set of piecemeal renovations. We're going to fix it by getting rid of it and doing something different. Yeah, it's a longer term vision. You know, if you can do a single shot cure for sickle cell disease and give it to kids who need it when before they have a lifetime of pain and misery, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, that solves a lot of the problems that you're talking about. Um, <laughs> okay, so you're you're getting more and more interested in these years in in biotech in the mid 2010s, and there's all kinds of stuff happening with better, faster, cheaper uh, sequencing, enabling a whole set of enabling technologies. Companies are coming out with uh, some important new medicines. And, but so how are you thinking about like where you fit in or how you could participate or make a contribution uh, given who you are and, and what your background was? Well, I, I started by thinking, I got to learn a lot of biology so that can be a part of this. Because as you know, Luke, whether you're a trained scientist or not, it's a whole lingo. It's a whole language. And um, it's not as if uh, there weren't and are not still lots of professional biotech investors, both in the public and private markets. So at that starting point, I just said, look, I want to be one of them. I want to get into this stuff and I got to figure out how to do it without the benefit of being a doctor or having a PhD. And, um, you know, luckily I've found the material really interesting. So I just started reading and talking to smart people and trying to piece together a broad understanding of the underlying scientific and engineering concepts that I would need in my arsenal in order to evaluate companies uh, in the industry. And, you know, I'm, I'm still learning, but I think that's a never ending process. And over a few years, I got conversant enough and looked at enough companies that I started to feel comfortable taking risk in the industry, taking risk on these investments. And, um, you know, I, I'm not somebody who manages other people's money um, without a fear of losing it. You know, it's a, it's a personal business and I care a lot about trying to do a great job for our investors. So as I was getting more and more into it, I, you know, was constantly trying to evaluate, okay, am I ready to start making bets on these sort of companies? And at a certain point, 
uh, I, you know, attained the confidence where I thought, okay, you know, I can do this now. With private early stage companies, the the world of venture capital. Um, so now we're no longer talking about public companies that anybody can invest in. Um, how did you find your way into this part of the of, of the value chain? Well, I had only ever done privates, you know, and the venture investing I was doing in those early years that I was starting to learn just the venture business, it was all privates. So all of the financial concepts, um, not that they're fundamentally different from what is needed to do public investing, but it, it was just my natural starting point to do venture. And um, biotech venture is obviously a quite specific discipline. So, okay, but you had to get connected with somebody who would hire you, and and uh, and give you some of this private capital to work with for for startups. And how did that start for you? Well, I got a another big break, and it's a odd big break. Puff Daddy, who had been a friend of mine, and, and we've done some music together uh, and investing together. He introduced me to a guy named Ron Burkle, and Ron is a incredibly successful serial entrepreneur and investor based here in Los Angeles. And Ron took me under his wing and and said, "I think you've got a talent for finding these cool companies, and um, I'll back you. So you can stop writing these small personal checks, and um, I'll give you an ability to, you know, with my money, make some investments that are material." And so we started working uh, together for several years. And as we made investments, I continued to just get more and more um, single-minded about doing biotech investing. And ultimately, a couple of years ago, I said to Ron, you know, I think I should start a firm. And, uh, you know, if you'd be willing to, it would be wonderful to have you as one of our first investors. And uh, he gave me his blessing to do that and was, you know, incredibly generous in being willing to support us early on. And Okay. So you were working as a sort of like a, a with a family office, essentially. Yeah, we created, we had, we had like a nominally a fund, but it was basically Ron's money and a little bit of my money. And then, you know, the next step, as I saw it, was to start a proper firm. And that's what we've done over the past couple of years. Right, right. So this is like becoming a, uh, an independent VC as a you know, general partner uh, where you have limited partners, time bio ventures. Uh, in order to get this thing off the ground and get your first 100 million, like real money to invest in startups, you had to do a, both the, the, the hard learning the, the reading and the talking to subject matter experts, uh, you needed to really exercise that curious beginner's mind and, and go deeper in some areas. But you also need uh, friends around the table because <laughs> uh, you can't take these investments like all by yourself with, I mean, for the most part. Um, so you did some networking. Um, how, how did you go about this in the, you know, the rather... Uh, clubby or insulated world of biotech venture capital? Well, I, there was no easy way to go about it. We just started talking to everyone we knew. I partnered up, I, I should mention, with my partner, Tim Wright, who you've met, Luke. And Tim brought a deep experience in drug development to the table. Tim's a physician as well by training, but 
in his career had done everything from run an early research group at Pfizer to overseeing all of global pharma development at Novartis. So Tim brought a gravitas on the drug development and, and medical side to our partnership. And Tim and I, you know, made a slide deck and started talking to anyone who would listen. And our pitch to people, what, and in particular to many of the families and individuals that have invested with us, was that um, as we sort of touched on, I think we're in the midst of a generational transformation of what medicine is and what our healthcare system looks like and what products are used in medicine. And so this is a great technological vector for investors to have exposure to, but yet it's very difficult to do. And um, that's why I think smart investors outsource this part of their strategy to groups like us or to you know the several established biotech VCs that have been doing this for a long time. Our pitch was that many of those firms uh, that are the sort of household names in the industry were started 20 or 30 years ago. And we could do something a little bit different based on starting it today and thinking about the evolving healthcare and biotech industries uh, with a sort of beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. So So you you made made your pitch, pitch, you and Tim, and uh, I I was sort of amused, Stat called you Biotech's new odd couple, (laughs) because you you have complementary skills, Uh, you're quite different, Uh, Tim being the, the older and uh, experience in drug development and you having the background that we described. Um, you, you raise this fund, you, you know a lot of people who have some money to invest. Uh, and, and, but you also put together this group of advisors, which a, a lot of celebrity names, in, at least in this world of biotech, like Bob Nelson and Arch and Jay Flatley, former CEO of Illumina, Jim Allison, the Nobel laureate, uh, uh, pioneer of the P1 inhibitors. Um, how, how do you go about um, building this network? And, and why do you think you've been as successful at it as you have? Well, all the people you mentioned are folks who have, in some way or other, taken me under their wing as I've gone through this journey into the biotech and healthcare industries that we talked about. And so I think in learning from them, we built relationships that had a lot of trust and in which people came to understand the way that I thought about investing and thought about um, the sort of problems that need to be solved in healthcare and medicine. And um, ultimately, when we were starting the firm, uh, you know, I think there was enough of a shared vision between us that uh, you know they were willing to take a bet on us, and uh, you know we're grateful for that because when you're starting a new company of any kind, you need those early champions to get off the ground, and um, it's wonderful that we have folks with that, you know level of prominence and who have done so much in the industry uh, who are you know behind us and helping us. Now, as you're getting started, uh, there's been, well, for the first couple of years, I think, there was a whole lot of venture capital going into startups, a lot of it going toward what you call this venture creation model, where the VC firms start the companies themselves. 
you're trying to do something a little bit different. Can you talk a little bit about um, your strategy for how you deploy the capital, what kinds of companies you like, as well as um, the the subsectors? You know, you mentioned drugs, diagnostics, tools. How, how does this all fit together under Time BioVentures? Well. The reason that we are open to all of those subsectors is, again, because we view them as all being integral to this reinvention of medicine that's taking place. And so we like companies that blur the lines between those silos um, that maybe more uh, incumbent investors have trouble placing. You know, they don't know, is this a diagnostic company or a device company or is this, you know. A, uh, a software business or a diagnostic company or a research tool. We, we like things that might be a little confusing to the incumbents in the capital market. And then to your point about venture creation or its alternatives, our model is focused mainly on identifying really unique entrepreneurs who we think can build large, generationally important companies. And there's nothing wrong with the venture creation model. But as you well know, Luke, the biotech industry has a sort of professional revolving door model where some of the big firms build companies every few years and the management talent moves between those companies you know, every few years. And that's fine. And it fits very nicely into a model where oftentimes the goal is to build a company with a couple assets and then flip it to a big pharma and go and do it again. But our belief is that in the context of this reinvention of medicine over the next few decades, there are going to be some enormous and very important businesses built. Companies that will be mentioned alongside Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon. So we're trying to be in the right place at what we think is the right time when creative entrepreneurs are going to start those companies. And you know, I point out to people, Moderna may be the one counterexample. Um, Genentech could be another. But I am not really aware of very many generationally important companies that in, in history have ever been started by investment firms. I think almost all of the really important companies are started by very unique entrepreneurs who have a sort of missionary zeal to build something massive over a long period of time. And we're trying to be here to support those people. Have you been influenced by any of your early experiences, early investments uh, that, um, that sort of fit this uh, model you describe, you know, hearing you give this answer, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about Beam. I know that was a company that you invested in. It may have a little bit of venture creation to it in that John Evans came from Arch, but um, I don't really see him going back into that revolving door or flipping the asset really quickly either. So um, is that is that kind of what you're thinking of? It is. I mean, I think John is an extraordinary entrepreneur. You look at the speed with which he built that organization, financed it, took it public, has advanced the programs. It, it's people like him that we're trying to find. And 
maybe they've been successful already in their career, but now they want to go for the grand slam and they're not going to stop uh, on first or second base. So it is those people. There's another company, you know, before our fund that I made an investment in called Devoted Health. They're in the Medicare Advantage space, which is sort of an increasingly uh, complex area, unclear whether it's going to, meaning Medicare Advantage is going to ultimately be a a great thing for our society or not. But um, the entrepreneur, they're just extraordinary. And uh, Todd Park and his, his brother. And so it's finding these people who we think are sort of once in a generation founders and then supporting them in their effort to build something that's going to be a lasting company. How do you find these people? We just wait around. Um, and the, the secret of, I think, uh, venture capital is that your results are significantly determined by your deal flow. So if you figure that all of the firms were investing, you know, in parallel with, you know, think of all the known biotech VCs, you know, they all have really smart investors on their teams. Um, this is one of the most educated investor populations in the economy, right? Everyone's got a PhD or an MD and they're all brainiacs. And so I think the uh, choosing between companies uh, aptitude of different firms is more or less a commodity. It's all smart people looking at the evidence and trying to make good decisions. And so I think what really determines differential outcomes is the quality of what comes in the door. And so firms that, for example, explicitly have a venture creation model will not attract the entrepreneurs we're talking about. Because those entrepreneurs don't want to start a company where from day one, they've sold 90% of it to the VC. Um, It just doesn't make sense if they're trying to build a company that's enormous that they own a large part of. Um, And so I think just by telling our story, by making investments in those sorts of people and letting the results speak for themselves, our portfolio becomes the greatest advertisement for what we do. And you want the entrepreneur to own a bigger piece of the company. Yeah. I mean, you know, we want them to come to us and tell us that they need some money to get to the next level. And in a sense, it's it's a traditional venture capital model. Find great people, attract great people, really. They have to come to us many times. And, um, you know, we want to build a reputation as supporting them and working with them in a really constructive way. Um, such that the word gets out and, you know, they tell their friends and more talented people come to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I think I've already, we've already talked about why this is a great time to be doing this kind of investment with all of the enabling technologies, the speed of learning, the computation. It's way, way better than when I started covering this industry 20 years ago uh, and way better than when I think you started plugging in too. Um, but maybe, so could you give me like the bull and the bear case? Like, why is this a great time to be a biotech investor? And why is it also potentially fraught? Yeah. Well, I think you just made the bull case. So I second everything you said. Um, the, the bear case, and it's something we think a lot about, is that historically, the risk and return 
potential of investing in biotech and investing in healthcare has not been attractive enough to attract the kind of capital that is needed to serve the abundant um, wave of technologies that we're now facing. So we have this embarrassment of riches in terms of breakthroughs. And what's needed is a lot of risk capital to translate those into products and ultimately change in our healthcare system. And I think what it's incumbent upon us and other investors in the space, this is one way in which we all sort of should work together um, and not just be competitors, is we have to figure out how to translate what is clearly a change in the risk equation into a model that capital allocators appreciate makes this a space where they need to deploy more capital. And what I would love to see is money flow into biotech investing. I mean, I hope we get some of it, but I'm delighted if our competitors do too. I'd like to see the biotech venture capital market be 10 times larger than it is today in a decade or two. That's the big project. And it's far from certain whether or not that's going to be possible. So I think that's kind of the bear case is that what if it just stays the size it is today and we continue to have a relatively low ceiling on the volume of innovation that is able to be financed? I thought you might mention the pricing uh, controversy and uh, its closely related partner access. To therapies, you know, I I heard a, a report from McKinsey recently where they were talking about, uh, you know, all the medicines that have come down the pike in say the last ten years, and how many people have actually been eligible or gotten them, and it's a pretty small number. Um, lots of strides for rare disease, for can- certain types of cancer, um, hepatitis C we mentioned earlier, but there there's all this amazing stuff happening. And it's not really broadly shared or, or evenly distributed. Uh, and we have this tremendous uh, pressure in society to contain the costs. And I think that has something to do with the, um, uh, the, the, the risk profile that the VCs see. Uh, if, if that weren't such an issue, we might see more more capital going into these startups. Do, do you agree? Or how do you think about uh, this um, this mega trend and how we get into a better place? Well, I would say first off, the public obsession um, and the obsession among um, legislators with the pharmaceutical industry as this kind of boogeyman is obviously misplaced. If you look at our healthcare spending, I mean, I forget the exact numbers, but it's like we spend what 15 or 18% or something might be even lower on uh, drugs. And most of the rest of the money we spend on healthcare is going effectively to hospitals. So if we really want to bring down our cumulative healthcare costs as a society, the only way we're going to do that is by fixing the healthcare delivery system, or as I said earlier, putting it out of business progressively. Um, that said, you know, it's worthwhile to ask whether or not we can be more capital efficient in any part of the healthcare market. And I do think in um, 
biotech, particularly in pharma, we get as a society what the incentives, um, you know, dictate. And so, for example, in the Inflation Reduction Act, as you know, there are these parameters around the government's ability to negotiate pricing on small molecules that are different than their rights to negotiate biologics. That, of course, is now going to bias venture capitalists and pharmas against investing in small molecule development. Yeah, it's a headwind for biotech VCs. Well, it is. Um, now, look, I think there's plenty of innovation to be done in other spaces, but people are going to think twice about investing in small molecule companies, which are already um, hard enough investments to make. So it is true that I think uh, policymakers and the public conversation around biopharma um, could be much more evidence based. And, you know, I'm on the board of this organization, Peter Kolchinsky from RA Capital started No Patient Left Behind. We're trying to increase the literacy around these topics, but these are very complex issues. They're very difficult to explain around the dinner table. Um, you know, it, it's an easy win for politicians to demonize pharmaceutical companies because everyone thinks that it's a crooked industry. And, you know, all of us should do what we can to clean up that image and try to promote a truthful discourse around uh, the policies that do circumscribe what folks like I, you know, do every day, which is basically try to rationally balance the risk and reward associated with investing in medical innovation. Yeah, I think Peter's done a nice job of uh, ex explaining the issue that uh, too much of the cost has been shifted onto patients and individuals, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a big reason why you have all this this outrage um, about uh, coming from the public, and it's just not right. And I worry that longer term, it could create the what you see happen in the developing world all the time. What uh, one of the people I know at the Gates Foundation calls the innovation pileup, <laughs> which is you develop some new vaccine that's that's great uh, for pick a disease, malaria, dengue, whatever, uh, but uh, you can't really get it to all the people who need it because the healthcare system doesn't work or there's not a proper incentive uh, for, for it to be distributed the right way. Um, I think we, we we do see signs of that kind of stress here too, and and will if we don't uh, do something different. You look at the uh, antibiotic, you know, issue, and there I'll, I'll sort of date this podcast, but today there's some question over whether Congress is going to pass this Medicaid Reform Act, and looks like that act is not going to include the sort of incentives that are needed to drive novel antibiotics development by investors and by industry. Um, you know, we're creating really unnecessary <laughs> challenges for our healthcare system by depriving physicians of medicines that could effectively combat some of this antibiotic resistance. Uh, and, you know, it's just like COVID. It, it, there were plenty of people for decades um, talking about the risks of a pandemic, and we underinvested in preparedness. And, you know, ultimately, when you take that sort of short-term view, uh, you set yourself up for much larger costs, both in terms of human lives and financial costs. Uh, you know when ultimately the uh, the problem arises. 
I'm glad you mentioned short-term views. This show is called The Long Run, <laughs> and you're someone who, think, who thinks about the long term, uh, you know, a curious and creative person. So last thing I want to ask you, DA, what, what's one thing that you've read or watched or listened to lately that, um, that you really loved and, and helps you think about the long-term future of, of what you do? Oof. Hmm. You know, I'm reading, uh, Andrew Lowe has a, from MIT, has this new textbook that just came out on healthcare finance. And it's a, you know, it's a hardcore financial theory book that tries to put biopharma uh, investing essentially into the context of financial theory. Um I'm about a quarter of the way through it and I've learned some really useful tools. And that, in a way, gets at uh, an aspiration that I have, which is to be able to weave together some of the things we've talked about that have popped up in my life at different times, which are economics, um, asset management as a business model, um, and biopharma innovation and, and to try and innovate in some small way, you know, this would be my goal, innovate in some small way um, how we can, again, drive more and more capital into these activities, which I think are some of the long-term highest returning investments that society can possibly make in the future. And um, I, I can't say I figured out how to do it. But, uh, you know, this book is great because it's sort of uh, strung a lot of these topics together and it's, you know, provocative. Well, I, I think uh, you've certainly got a lot of exposure to folks in the um, Silicon Valley tech world, as well as the biotech world. And, uh, you know, I know there's lots of consternation in the tech world about where have all the you know amazing mind blowing innovations uh, gone? <laughs> the things that really change life, and you know, is a social media platform really it? <laughs> uh, and so I think, <clears throat> I, I mean, I have my bias, right? This is what I write and do, but uh, you do too. Biotech is uh, this is where tremendous strides for humanity are going to come in the next hundred years, and so somebody like Andrew Lowe, I think, is asking the right question. Like we have all this capital. <laughs> lots and lots of capital in the world that for one reason or another is not being deployed in this sector, which um, really uh, offers some of the greatest returns, both financial and in a human sense. Uh, it's really where a lot of resources really ought to be going. Uh, and uh, how do we do that? How do we do that in a more thoughtful way? Exactly. That's, that's the question. And uh, it, it requires innovation in the financial engineering of this capital market, I believe. Well, DA, I trust you'll finish the book and uh, come back to us later with, uh, you know, some novel idea. Really uh, appreciate you taking the time and sharing a little bit of your life and perspective with us on the long run. Thanks for having me, Luke. Always so nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. The music, of course, is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.